So Parshat Vayeshev, um, just want to make two dedications. First of all, I know that uh, the Adlers had your site today for Mordechai Yoshua ben Moshe Meir Cohen, Dr. Dan Schwartz, who I was zochet to meet. Um, I actually think, from my understanding, this year is going to perfectly fit who he was. And I also think we would be remiss in not mentioning um, Eliyahu K. It's a difficult week. Uh, you know, Chayal Boded, who made Aliyah, um, is actually seriously dating a girl, whole life ahead of him. For some reason that's beyond our comprehension, Hashem had a different plan. So this year should also be in the Louis for his neshama. Um, it's a longer discussion. If you want to have it uh, later on over the Cholent, I'm happy to do that. Parashat Vayishlach. I want to tell you an amazing story. I heard this, uh, I was at a tish once um, of the Boston Rebbe in Harnof on a Matzi Shabbos and he told the following story. Okay? When Rabbi Sacher of, Nich- of Nicholsburg, who was the Rav of Nicholsburg, was Nifter, so they needed to find someone to take his place. How do you find someone to switch Rabbi Sacher of Nicholsburg? He was Tremendous Talmud Chacham, Tzadik. They found Rav Shmelke. Rav Shmelke of Nicholsburg is a, one of the famous Hasidic Rebbeim. And he came to Nicholsburg. And you know how it is. They, they, they test him out. They want to, and then they bring him. And the, the, the Rebbe had a big house. You know, they used to do the Fabrengans and the Tishes. And they bring him to the house where he's going to live. And he's going to be the new Rebbe in Nicholsburg, the Hasidic Rebbe. And he walks into the house. And he's walking around the house. He's, oh, oh, oh. So the guy thinks like Nebuch, like what's going on? He's got appendicitis. He says, what is that smell? What is that smell? So the person walking him around thinks like what's going on? He says, no, you don't understand. This is the sweetest smell. Now it could be that he had Ruach HaKodesh and he was smelling like 150 years before his time you're right to chill. That could be. But that's not how the story goes. He smells the sweetest smell. He says, where's that smell coming from? So the person walking around says, I say, look in every room. It's just unbelievable. He says, I'm smelling Gan Eden. Where is this coming from? So the guy wanted to say, well, this was the house of Rabbi Sacher of Nicholsburg, you know. He says, no, no, no. Something special happened here. Okay. So he says, you have to find out. I have to know what happened here. Some incredible story. So they start asking around, uh, stories about Rashmelki. Nobody can figure out what this is. And one day, a couple weeks later, he's now the Rebbe. And word is spread that there's this incredible smell in the house that only Rav Shmelki can smell, because that's how Hasidic tales go. And there must be some story. And he's looking for a special story about Rabbi Sacher of Nicholsburg. And he's walking in the street on the way to way home from uh, Minyan one day. And a woman comes over to him and says, are you the new Rebbe of Nicholsburg? And he says, yes. And she says, well, and she's like, she doesn't even look like a Jewish woman. And she says, well, I heard you're looking for a special story about Rabbi Sacher. And she says, yes. So she says, well, I don't know if this is what you're looking for, but I do have a story to tell you. And I think it's good that you should know this story and know whose place you're trying to fill. So she was a non-Jewish sort of caretaker, a woman. 
and she, you know, she was a widow, and they hired her, and she would, you know, she was like the Shabbos Goy, would help with the children. And she said, I worked with the Rizachar for many, many years. But she says, I still remember the first week that I had the job. It was the eve of your big holiday, Passover. So, and she says, like, the, the, the eve of the holiday, right? You know, Erev Pesach, right? She didn't say it that way. So uh, they were all busy getting preparations, and my job was to take care of the children. And so that's what I did. I took care of the children, didn't know them well, whatever. And then the Rebbe comes home, and whatever's going on, and the preparations take on a new fervor, and everybody's getting dressed, and they've yumped of finest, and whatever else is going on. And, you know, it's sort of getting late in the day, and the rabbi is going to go to synagogue, and, you know, the kids are all, I'm helping the kids bathe and get dressed, and they're all ready for the festival. And then, uh, and then there's like a tumult. Like, something's going on. And I don't know what's going on. And the rabbi's walking around and says, where's the Shmura Matzah? And I hear this, and I say, the, sh- the Shamatza, the what? And they're all looking for something, they can't find it. Now, you have to understand, Shmura Matzah in the house of a Hasidic Rebbe is not just like you go to the store and you buy, like from the factory, and you pay a little more. I mean, they had a, a field. They would find a field, and they would guard the wheat, that no water should come in the, in, in the wheat once it was harvested. That, that there shouldn't even be the remotest risk that there would be chametz. That's what it means that it's shamur, it's guarded. They take the flour, they grind it, they're careful, they watch it that no water should come in contact with the grain. Even before it's floured, it's, it's much more expensive, it's tremendous work. The chassidim take turns guarding it. And then they take the grain and they grind it and they, they, they do everything and then they, they bake it and they, in less than 18 minutes and it's a very involved process, it's very expensive. And he spent a lot of money. This is the Rebbe's hand shmura matzah. It's like matzah deluxe. And they had this prepared and two weeks before the festival and it was already put in a safe place. And he says to his wife, it's, everything's ready, the Seder table is set and they're only missing the shmura matzah because you don't put that out. Everybody knows till the last minute nobody should break it. And now he tells his wife, like, just let's bring out the shmura matzah and they can't find it. It's not where it was. And nobody knows where it is. And she suddenly realizes that they're looking and she suddenly realized maybe they're looking for what... So she walks over the rabbi and she looks terrified. And she says, are you looking for the crackers? And he's like, the crackers? The big round crackers. Yes, the big round crackers. Where are the big round crackers? So she's like afraid to say it, but you know, you gotta be honest. So she says, well, you were all out and the kids were hungry and they were crying and I didn't know what to do. I'm new here, I couldn't find any food in the house. So I finally found the crackers. And so I gave the children the crackers to eat. Is that a problem? And the rabbi pauses and he looks at her and he has this moment of realization and he says to her, I cannot begin to thank you enough for taking care of our children and making sure that they were hungry and I'm sorry that we didn't make sure that you had the right food and thank you so much. And he immediately tells his wife that she should get machine matzahs. Well, they weren't machine matzahs, regular matzahs. And all will be good, and he goes off to show. And she said only later did she find out that this was a big deal. But he didn't seem at all perturbed about this. And if Schmelke of Nixelberg hears this story, and he says, now I understand what that smell was. Can you imagine? It's Erev Pesach. It's, it's an hour before the Seder. And you have the Shmura matzah, and it's gone. Because some non-Jewish woman gave it to the kids as crackers and he didn't even look annoyed 
There wasn't even a moment of being perturbed. That's what a Rebbe is supposed to be. Now, why do I tell you that story? Why do I tell you that story? By the way, what sort of energy does it take a person to be able to have that sort of a reaction? And how much of that reaction was because this was a woman who was a widow and she was a servant and it's not easy? And it never occurred to him to get angry. By the way, regardless of whether Hasidic stories happened or didn't happen, if that story didn't happen, it should have happened, maybe one day it will happen, it's irrelevant to me, right? There's a message to this story. So put aside this story in one corner of your brain, and let's talk a little bit about Parshat Vayeshev. If you had to pick a quality that that story demonstrates, what would it be? What word would you find? What would you say? I'm willing to bet most of you will come up with the same word, yeah? Pardon? Oh, that's always true. But there's a character trait that a person has to have. He lived it, okay, yeah. Pardon? Restraint. Restraint would imply that he was angry, but he kept it inside. Okay, could be. I'm a little more of a chassid than that, but okay. Resilience. That's interesting, yeah? Expectations. Expectations, or no expectations. Yeah, nope, don't think so. It's a good guess, though, yeah? Priorities. Priorities. Interesting, yeah? Pardon? Bitul. That's also interesting. Nobody comes up with this, yeah? Patience is a good one. I want to suggest something else. I think, and this is just an opinion, that this story is really about the fact that he understood the person who was standing before him. I would call that empathy. Empathy. So I started thinking about this. Empathy. What is empathy? Right? So I looked this up. What is empathy? Listen to this definition. By the way, it's interesting. What is the Hebrew word for empathy? Anybody know? Anybody know? Empatia. Empatia. Interesting. The ability to understand and share the feelings of another. That's what empathy is. Okay? I looked this up. There's a, a psychotherapist, a world-renowned psychotherapist with the name of Carl Rogers. And he writes the following. Empathy is the accurate understanding of the other person's world as seen from the inside. Let me say that again. Empathy is the accurate understanding of the other person's world as seen from the inside. Can anybody think of a Mishnah in Perkeavos that might relate to this? You can't judge your fellow until you stand in his place. You know, I don't know, uh, somebody gets upset because you took the last piece of schnitzel. And now you had the last piece of schnitzel. So you're not hungry. He's upset because he's hungry. You can't judge him unless you're hungry. And you're not hungry, so you can't judge him. In fact, can you ever stand in another person's place? Right? By the way, where do I find this in the Torah? There are many examples. But I'll give you, I guess, my favorite. This is a Pasuk and Shemot. Okay? If anybody can guess what I'm going to talk about. This is actually in the Rambam Hilchos Deus. This is in Sefer Mishpatim. Yeah, Parsha Mishpatim. Yeah? Parsha Mishpatim. You want to give me a guess, though? So that's a good guess, but it's not exactly the same. Listen to this Pasuk. This is so obvious. And you all know this, but for some reason nobody thinks of this. You're not allowed to cause a stranger 
um, travail, not let it pressure a stranger. Interesting question what a ger is here. We're going to get into that when we get to the mitzvah of and Hilchodeir. Why can't you oppress a stranger or a ger? Because you were strangers. In other words, you should feel the pain of the stranger. You should know what it feels like to be a stranger, to be an outsider, to be a minority, to be someone who isn't accepted. And you should always be sensitive to that. Right? That's empathy. That's what it's supposed to be. Right? You know, to walk in another person's shoes. Now, here's where it gets interesting. So how come... There's no word in the Torah for this. And I went looking. I thought, well, come up with something. I thought, and then I was going to, you know, give a shear on that word and what it means. There's no word for this. Right? Rachamim, not quite. Chesed, not quite. Right? In, in modern Hebrew, if you don't want to look, it took me a while to find this one. Um, it, it, the word is hizdahut, to identify with someone, which isn't exactly empathy. There are certain words in the English language that for some reason one doesn't find in Hebrew. Not ancient Hebrew, not modern Hebrew. Uh, the word accountability. No Hebrew word for accountability. I don't know. That's very Israeli. and We could have a discussion about it. All right? Why is there no word for empathy when clearly the Torah wants empathy? Now, why do I tell you this? Why are we introducing this topic? Because what's really going on in, in this week's Parsha, Right? By the way, I'll give you one more example because this is such a great example. Um, it, it, over here it says, you know, in, 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 in Parsha Shmot, when it talks about this in Mishpat, because I would go so far as to say that this topic is, is a topic of Mishpat. Mishpatim, by the way, just to be clear, even though it's not our Parsha, is really the first time that I find the mitzvot as given to us at Harsina and laid out. And one of the central topics in Parsha Mishpatim is empathy. And I'll give you another example, because this is such a great example, um, if I can find it. In Kesef Talvetami, there's a whole sugi in the Gemara about this, right? If you want to lend somebody money, etani imach, the poor person amongst you, lo tiyelo kenoshe, you can't be a creditor, you can't oppress him, you can't stress him, you can't constantly badger him for the payment and all sorts of stuff. So what does Rashi say, etani imach? Heve mistakel be'atzmecha, that's what Rashi says. This is in Parak Chafbet, Pasuk Chafdala, 22-24. You, in order not to oppress an ani, a poor person, you have to look at yourself as though you're the poor person. You have to try to put yourself in the other person's shoes. You have to be empathetic. Now, by the way, one could make a case for saying, you can't put yourself in someone else's shoes. You can never put yourself in someone else's shoes, which means you can never judge another human being. That's a little bit of a challenging idea. Um, we're going to talk about that in the Ram of Hilchodeo, so I'm not going to belabor the point now. By the way, you find this in Hilchos Tshuva. Sometimes the Rambam sets up a scenario, Chazal set up a scenario, which is almost impossible in order to tell you that it's impossible. Does anybody know what example I'm thinking of? Yeah? Nope. No, no, no. That's not about um, being in someone's position. That's about sort of the difficulty of, of knowing something, yeah? Nope. That's also good. I'm not talking about a case that can't be. I'm talking about a situation that is almost impossible. That's not an impossible situation. It's just we can't prove it. No. Ezohi tshuva gemura. That's what the Ramah says in Nechot tshuva. What is complete tshuva? So the Ramah says you have to be the same age. You have to have the same level of desire. You have to be in the exact same scenario. 
And the Rambam gives the example, if a person sort of has a, 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 you know, commits some transgression of a licentious behavior, adultery, right? So it has to be, it has to be the woman. You can't, you can't see the woman again and, you know, she woke up from a schluff in curlers. She has to be just as beautiful to you. And if you see her when you're 90, it's not the same because you don't have the same passion. You have to have, everything has to be after the same age and the same passion and she has to be as beautiful and you have to desire as much. So when you read this Rambam, you realize you'll never be in the same situation again. Which I personally feel is, is the Rambam's point. Like, know that you're never done. You just never know. Always be aware that you made a mistake and you can make the mistake again. It's an arrogance to assume you can't make it again. So the fact that we say, don't judge your fellow until you stand in his place, I'm not sure you can ever stand in a person's place. Which means you should never judge another human being. You can judge a person's action, but you can't judge another human being. Okay, why is there no word for empathy? We'll get back to that. So what's going on in this week's parsha? Right? So if you had to pick a character trait, which is the most challenging character trait of this week's parsha, what would it be? And I'll give you a hint. It's, it's, it's a mitzvah. It's one of the 11 mitzvot that, that clearly the avu vot ha'uma were violating and quite blatantly in the Torah. What, what are we talking about? What mitzvah? How many mitzvahs are there in Hilchodeon? 11. What's the fifth mitzvah? Pardon? Don't hate. That's why you shan a bet. There you go, right? Lotisna tachicha bilvavecha. This is the first time we find the concept of hatred in the Torah, which means what we're about to discuss is the paradigm of hatred. Okay? They hate Yosef. Listen to how many times it says this. Right? Um, Israel loves, which may mean he wants to give to this child more than all of his other children. And that might be understandable. This child has no mother. Okay. He makes him this striped coat. Maybe technicolor. I actually once read a fascinating article. More likely black and white coat. Right? It was like a stark coat. Right. So his brothers see that Yaakov loves him more and they hate him. Now let me ask you a question. If you see that the father loves the brother more, who should you hate? The father. Isn't that interesting? They don't hate the father. They hate the brother. Interesting. Okay. The definition of hatred, the problem with hatred is that you can't talk to people. That's what hatred does. Hatred prevents me from communicating. We'll get back to that too. Yeah. When it says when it says what? Good question. Good question. Let's keep reading and we'll see. So Yosef dreams a dream and he tells his brothers and they continue to hate him. Now it's clear who we're talking about, right? So it's not enough that they hate him. Now they continue to hate him. Second time. And then... So he has these dreams. You know, the sun, the moon, the stars, they're all bearing down to me, right? Your wheat, alumot, your, uh, what's that? Wheat bushels are bearing down to my wheat bushel. So they hate him even more. So they hate him, then they hate him more, then they hate him even more, right? Okay, and when, when, 
when he is sent out later in the parsha to go find his brothers in that famous story, he goes to Emek Dotan, right? It says, um, sorry, Vayiruoto Me'achok, right? They see him. There it doesn't say they hate him, even though it leads to killing him. Because they already hate him so much, there's nothing more to talk about. So what makes a person hate another human being? They hate him. Okay. Something else that's interesting. So, look at this Pasuk. They're also jealous of him. Why are they jealous of him? What did Yaakov do? Yaakov gave him the coat, right? That's what we all think. No. This is fascinating, right? I have a firm belief that every year when you study the parasha, you think you find something new. I never noticed this before. I've been learning the parasha for at least 40 years. Never noticed this before. So interesting, right? When he has the dreams, when, sorry, when he gets the coat, right? It says, oh, I'm sorry. They hate him for getting the coat. Why are they jealous of him? That's in Pasuk, um, Pasuk Dalit, in the fourth verse. Only in Pasuk Yud Aleph does it say Ve'ekanubo. And that's after this whole story of the dreams. He tells his father, he tells his brother these dreams. It says Ve'ekanubo Echav. They're jealous of him. They're not jealous of him of the coat. They hate him for the coat. Why are they jealous of him? They're jealous of him for the dreams. Isn't that interesting? Chazal, you know, there's, there's a tension here between Pshat and Drush. The contextual reading of the verses seems to suggest that these are horrible guys. They hate their brother. They hate him more. They throw him in a pit. They conspire to sell him. They almost kill him. Terrible. Chazal taken in a wholly different direction. They felt that he was a Rodef. They felt that he was going to be, you know, Avram has two sons, Yitzchak and Yishmael, and one of them doesn't get included. He doesn't get the inheritance. Yitzchak has two sons. One of them is clearly not the one who's chosen. He doesn't get the blessings. So now Yaakov has a bunch of sons. Maybe we're going to have the same thing. Why should they assume everybody's part of the Jewish people? That's a whole interesting question, maybe for next week or two weeks from now, how that happens. So somebody's going to get left out. And they start to realize it's the children of Rachel against the children of Leah. And since Bilah and Zilpah are the handmaidens, they group in with the children of Leah, so it's the ten against the two. And Yosef is either going to get chosen or he's going to get dumped. And he's having these dreams. He's having some form of communication from Hashem, Ruach HaKodesh, Ve'aviv Shamarat HaDavar. They're jealous. They're not jealous of his coat. They're jealous of his dreams. That's a high level, not to be jealous of the coat. So that's an interesting question. What's going on here? So how did they come to hate Yosef so? Now, hatred is a dangerous thing. There's a Kleoker that says that hatred is like a boiling pot. Okay, if you leave a boiling pot on the fire, it eventually explodes. You got to take it off the fire. And nobody takes this off the fire. So eventually it explodes. Right? And that's exactly what's going on here. Okay? They hate him three times. Okay. So now we've got, we've got the issue of the hatred of the brothers and maybe the issue of jealousy. Now it gets interesting. So what happens? So Yosef comes out to the field 
they see him, right? And they decide they want to kill him, right? And then comes Ruvain. Ruvain is one of the most tragic figures in the Torah. And this is Ruvain's undoing. Ruvain is the Bahor. Ruvain is the leader of the Jewish people. He's the firstborn. Ruvain should be the Melech. Where does Ruvain mess up? Now, there are two opinions as to where Ruvain mess up. You want to say? Pardon? So one opinion is, you know, the whole story with the Dudaim. Right, that was in last week's parsha. Okay? Um, and that's a whole interesting question because of what Yaakov says on his deathbed. Um, there is a second opinion, which is that this week sees Ruvain mess up. You could say both, but I'm not sure you have to choose it. But let's look at what Ruvain does. By the way, if you, you, know, if you look back at, uh, at the parsha of Vayishlach, I'm not going to take the time to look it up. Um, it's a powerful pasuk, right? Vayishkav Ruvain et Bilha Pilegesh Aviv, right? Ruvain. So the Gemara says it doesn't mean that Ruvain sleeps with Bilha. It means that he moves her bed, right? He, he, he feels now that Rachel has passed, Leah should take her rightful place in the principal sort of tent with Yaakov. You don't play around with your dad's bed. That's just not appropriate, right? Like you wouldn't go into your parents' bedroom and say, I don't like these sheets, I'll switch the sheets. They'd be like, what are you doing in our bedroom? It's not appropriate. And it's a powerful pasuk. Look this pasuk up last week in Vayishlach. It's one of the only pasukim in the entire Torah that doesn't end. It says, Vayishkav, right? Vayishkav Ruvein et Bilha Pilegash Aviv. Vayishma Yaakov. Okay? And then there's an etnachta. An etnachta, which comes from the word lanuach, is in the middle of the verse, an upside-down bell. It's a cantillation, right? Uh, one of the tamei mikra. And it always means a pause. But it's never the end of a pasuk, right? Bereshit bara elokim etnachta. Right? In this pasuk, however, it says, Vaishma Yaakov, or is it Vaishma Israel? I don't remember. Pause. And then Vayubanav Shnemasar. And the children of Yaakov were 12. It's, it's a totally new pasuk. What's going on? There's a space in the Torah there. It doesn't make sense. So Rav Salvechik has a powerful idea here. He says there are times in life where you know that you need to be quiet. You need to be silent. Yaakov understands that he's this close to losing one of his sons. Ruvain is furious. Ruvain's hurt. Ruvain's upset. Ruvain's defending his mother, Kibudaim. And, and that's a rebellious act. And Yaakov understands that Ruvain is one foot out the door. And Yaakov hears this. He doesn't say anything. Because he doesn't say anything, the Pasuk continues, The Jewish people stay together. That is a powerful idea. But putting that idea aside, Ruvain does something and he messes up in a big way. So maybe in this week's Parsha, Ruvain is trying to become the Bechor again. Ruvain is trying to rectify, to do the right thing. Right? So what happens with Ruvain? Vayishma um, Ruvain. Okay, what do the brothers say? They see him coming from a distance. Before he gets there, they say, we're going to kill this guy. They conspire to kill him. That's what it means. You have to pause at this pasuk. These are ten brothers, the sons of Yaakov, and they want to kill their brother. That's unbelievable. 
Look, the dreamer's coming. Again, it's the dreams that bother them. Fascinating. Let's kill him. And let's, let's throw him in a pit. By the way, it's interesting. I always thought that a pit, I had this image of like a big pit full of water or whatever it is. All of us in the army were doing Nivutim, doing navigations. I discovered that out in the Shetach, you can actually, I did navigations in Emek Dotan in this area. Uh, a pit is not this big, like, you know, that's like in the movies. A pit is like, um, it's, it's, it's like a hole that could be like a manhole cover. And sometimes the ground gives way. In fact, they, they uh, not long after I was in the army, there were a couple of accidents where, you know, they used to do what's called the Nivud Bodet. The Nivud Bodet is they would send you out for like a 30-kilometer navigation, nowhere on your own. And if you were good at navigation, it was awesome because you knew where you were going and you, you know, enjoyed the stars. You had your own time to think, to whatever. But if you were bad at navigation, it was terrifying because you didn't know where you were and you could really get lost. And there were a couple of terrible tragedies. The guy's walking in the field disappears because he falls into a pit, right? And, and like the ground gives way and you're in this hollow area in the ground and it's like, you know, this, you know, 10 meters up to the ceiling and you're stuck in there and you can't get out. You know, you, you, you can't pull yourself out. It's muddy, you, you slide back down and then it starts to rain and the water fills up and there were boys who drowned in these things. And when they throw Yosef into one of these, that's where they throw him. And there's snakes in there and creepy crawler things in there. So just throw him in a pit, right? Now, if you throw a guy in a pit out in the Shetach and you leave him there, he's going to die. He can't get out of there. He's going to eventually either get flooded or die of starvation. And Reuven hears this and he saves them. He saves him from them. They're about to kill him. We're not going to kill him. And they listen to him. Which means Reuven is the Bechor again. He commands a certain respect and they listen to him. He does this in order to save him, in order to return him to his father. He wants to fix his relationship with his father. So that's a good thing, right? Reuven does a wonderful thing. Now, Reuven does not get credit for this. By the way, it could be that Yaakov never knows this story. That's an interesting debate amongst the Rishonim. But putting that aside for the moment, we don't seem to give Reuven a lot of credit for this. So Yosef comes, they strip him of his coat, right? By the way, which coat, do, what, what do they strip him of? No. Take a look at this. There are two opinions here. One opinion is, what does it say they strip him of his ketonet, of his shirt? The shirt, the, the striped coat. Why doesn't it just say they strip him of his striped shirt? Chazal say there were two ketonot. Everybody had a turn, everybody had a, had, a, had a shirt. Yosef had an extra one. And he has both of them. Why do they strip him of both of them? They just need one to dip in blood. So there's a whole discussion about the fact that Yosef gets two ketonot and everybody else has one. What does that symbolize? Anybody want to take a guess? What does it symbolize that one kid gets double? Close. Who said that? The Bechor. Exactly right. The Bechor gets a double portion. Anybody hear the firstborn? Uh, you, should, you should know this halacha. You've got to look this stuff up. You're going to be disappointed, but it's a good halacha to know, right? Okay. So, okay. So they strip him of his coat. It's hard work throwing your brother in the pit and whatever. So now they sit down to have lunch. 
ויישאו עיניהם ויראו והנה אורחת ישמעאלים באה מגילת. They see a, a caravan of the Ishmaelites that's coming from Eretz HaGilad. Now let me paint you this picture. And everybody knows what happens. They sell him as a slave, right? That's what everybody says. And most probably everybody would be wrong. By the way, if you want to read a fantastic article on this topic, Rav Menachem Lipeg, I'm sure you can find this in the virtual Beit Midrash of Gush, has a fantastic article on this topic. I'll spare you all the details. Hang on one second. But geographically, just so you understand where we are. Okay? Um, I wish I had a map here, but imagine I'm the map. Okay? And this is the north. This is, you know, uh, Lebanon. Right? This is the Golan. All the way down to the Kinneret. Okay? Up here is the Galil. What's below the Galil? The, the Shomron. And below that is Eretz Yehuda. So, for example, here is Yushalayim and Eretz Yehuda. And above that in the Shomron is Shechem, Jenin, all those areas. Right? Okay? Emek Dotan is in the northern Shomron. Okay, so you're sitting in Emek in the valley. It's a beautiful lush valley to this day, right? In the north of the Shomron, which is in a map, it's about the middle of the country. Now, you're sitting in the mountains there because you're on the, on the Rechas, on the, uh, the ridgeline of the Judean mountains, okay? And you can see in the distance. What do you see in the distance? Where do, does a caravan of Yishmaelites come from? From the east or the west? They come from the east, right? They come from Eretz Gilad. Eretz Gilad is the north of Jordan and the south of Syria. That's that area. And they're looking there and they see a caravan coming. Now this is interesting. What was that caravan a part of? And this was true not just 3,000 years ago, but 4,000 years ago and 2,000 years ago. This was part of the Spice Route, which was a famous route that came all the way from the north, from what is today Iraq, Syria, Turkey. And it came down the Jordan Valley Right? And goes all the way down into the Negev, all the way down to Egypt and to Africa. Right? Uh, most famously, the Nabataeans, the Nabatim, uh, they controlled the spice trade. Uh, for example, the city of Arad, they found major areas, you know, sort of fortifications of, of the Nabatim. Um, and there are a number of other places like that. So they see a big caravan coming. Now, in order from Eretz Goshen, uh, from Eretz Dotan, from Emek Dotan, to see a caravan in Eretz Agilad, it has to be a pretty big caravan. So they see a caravan coming. Right? Right? It's a spice trade. They're going down to Egypt. Okay? That was the spice trade. That was the route. In fact, the historians use these verses to demonstrate it. So what do they say? What, what profit is there to kill him? What are we going to get out of killing him? Which means what? What does that mean? They're sitting and having lunch. They haven't decided yet whether they're going to kill him. Ruvain says, let's take a pause. We'll throw him in a pit. Now think about this for a minute. What do you have to be feeling if you hate someone? What emotion are you experiencing? Anger. Anger and hatred are very much connected. What does Ruvain do? What does Reuven do? Reuven says, if you're angry, let's take a pause. Let's throw it in a pit. You're not ready to destroy it. You're not ready to let it go. You're not ready to give him a hug. Let's just throw it in a pit. You have an angry moment? Throw it in a pit. Take a pause. What do they do after they throw him in a pit? They have lunch. Let's make the pause a little longer. Let's talk about it. This is a good plan. If the Yishmaelim had not come, they would have done one of two things. They would have killed him. 
Only this time they would have killed him without being as angry. They would have thought about it and talked about it and there's a whole sort of level of chazal to talk about was, was Yosef a rodef? Was he trying to, to, to usurp them from the Jewish future? Did they have a right? I'm not going to get into the whole discussion. The Gemara talks about it. Okay, so now Yudah says, you know, why should we kill him? They're obviously discussing killing him. Let's sell him. This makes a lot more sense. His blood won't be on our hands. Maybe we'll make a profit. So they said, let's sell him. And this is the great hate of the brothers of Yosef, right? That they sold their brother into slavery for a pair of shoes. Right? Where do we read about this? On Yom Kippur, do you remember this? The beginning of the Ela Eskara? Your forefathers sold him into slavery. What should have been their verdict? They should have been put to death. They never did. You ten are going to be in their place. Do you remember this? Right? Except here's an interesting thing. Do the brothers really sell Yosef into slavery? The Rajbam here, one second, the Rajbam, the Rajbam, by the way, was the grandson of Rashi. And it's worth, uh, at some point, reading the introduction of the Rajbam. He echoes his father, his grandfather's opinion that he's coming to explain Pshat. There are parts of the Rajbam that are not included in standing across Gdolos because he says things that are pretty off the edge, sometimes even a little heretical. It's an amazing parish, right? But very sharp. No, it is. I mean, if you want an example, Thursday night, tonight, you can come on, I'll give you a great example. Right? Listen to what the Rajbam says. Right? Right? The Pasuk says, there were Midianites that came along. It's the Yishmaelites come along and they pull Yosef out of the boar. Now, where are the brothers here? They're still eating lunch. How do the Yishmaelites know that Yosef's in the boar? Very simple. Because if you look later on in Parshat Miketz, when everything is going wrong for the brothers <clears throat> and they're you know, being threatened with throwing in prison and their money is returned and something's going crazy, we are guilty because we didn't heed the cries of our brother when he called out to us that's why this trouble of what's going on with them in Egypt with Pharaoh and that whole story that's why that happened so Yosef was screaming to them he was begging them and they weren't listening and the Ishmaelites come by. Why are the Ishmaelites there? Same thing. Because they would sell wares to the spice traders and they would exchange barter. And there's a whole, I mean, you can look this stuff up online. It's amazing. There's a whole trade system going on here. And they hear some guy screaming. So they look into a pit and they see this kid. And he's a good looking kid. Which means he's worth a lot of money because you can sell him. So that's what they do. They sell him. This is a clean profit. And where are the brothers? They're still eating lunch. Now let me ask you a question. If I want to steal, I don't know, your wallet, and I plan to steal the wallet, but before I get there, somebody else steals the wallet. Gavi comes along and steals the wallet. Am I guilty? I've done something terrible. I've wanted to do something bad. That's not good. I've got to work on that. But am I liable in any way, shape, or form? No. So the brothers wanted to sell their brother, but they didn't. The Yishmaelites sold the brother. So they're not guilty of kidnapping and they're not guilty of selling Yosef. 
which raises an interesting question. What are they guilty of? I mean, this, this, this is, I mean, this is the paradigm Ben Adam Lachavero. What's the paradigm hate of Ben Adam Lamakam in Judaism? Paradigm hate against God. Which is which one? Which hate? Chet Egel. What's the paradigm hate? Paradigm mistake. The Yavia vote. The father of all chataim of Ben Adam Lachavero, human relations, Mechirat Yosef. But they didn't sell him. So if they didn't sell him, what's the big issue here? Why is this so terrible? And, 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 and what did Reuven do wrong? So I want to tell you a deep idea. Deep idea. And we'll put this together and then we'll put it to bed. Okay? What went wrong with Ruvain? You know when we figure out what went wrong with Ruvain? When Ruvain comes back. Ruvain goes away, that's a whole interesting discussion. On one level, that's symbolic of the fact that if you're a leader and you're not there, then you're not really a leader. That's a whole interesting question. Ruvain gets his priorities wrong. We're not going to talk about that because that would take us too long. But they sell him. He's sold. And now Ruvain comes back. He wants to save Yosef. So he comes back to the board. The brothers are eating lunch. And he's going to save Yosef. There's no Joseph in the board. And he tears his clothing. So what in this moment is Reuven? Is Reuven a Russia or a Tzadik? What do you think? He's a Tzadik. Okay, he may be a Nebuch, but he's a Nebuch Tzadik. He wants to save his brothers. He feels terrible. He's tearing his clothes. What is tearing his clothes? Empathy. This is who you're supposed to be. If your brother is gone, it should cause you pain. Very simple. Vayasha, pardon? Okay, we'll get to that question. Give me one more minute. That's an excellent question. I didn't say they didn't do anything wrong. I just said we got to figure out what they did wrong. They clearly did something wrong. He's got to figure out what it is. So he goes back to his brothers. Now what should he say when he goes back to his brothers? He should say, where's Yosef? What's going on? We're in trouble. What am I going to do? That is a powerful statement. He doesn't even name Yosef. In fact, it's very interesting. The beginning, the Torah calls Yosef Vahu Nar. He's a Nar. He's a lad. He's 17. The Torah takes the time to tell me he's 17 years old. Look at the beginning of Parshat Vayeshev. Reuven calls him a Yelid. He's not looking at him as an adult. He's a boy. Now, when a person is a child, you don't take them seriously. And just to make sure that this is clear, look at what happens when Reuven is talking to the brothers in Parshat Miketz. When they're talking about the fact that this is why all this travail came on them, right? The brothers say, we're guilty of what we did to our brother. What does Ruven say? I told you, he calls him again the Yelet. For Ruven, this is just a boy. And what's the focus of Ruven? What am I going to do? He mentions the word Ani twice. You know, it reminds me of a famous story of Lubavitcher Rebbe. Somebody wrote a letter to the Lubavitcher Rebbe who was really struggling. I forget what the story was. It doesn't really matter. You know, uh, there was something that was bothering him. 
I was promised this job and I, I thought differently and then they told me that I'm no good and, and I, 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 I don't know what the story was. And the the Rabbi Trevi responded to the letter. He sent it back to him and he circled the word I in the letter. Every word I was circling the letter. And the guy got the message. Your problem is not them. Your problem is there's too much I in your letter. Ruvain's problem is that Ruvain's worried about Ruvain. Ruvain's not thinking about Yosef. The hate of the brothers was a lack of empathy. And I'll tell you something interesting. There is an amazing Ramban. The Pasuk says, I first noticed this Ramban through Shlomo Kimchi, a good friend of mine, who says the following. When, when Yosef comes to find his brothers, and we're almost done. When Yosef comes to find his brothers, listen to this Pasuk. They see him from a distance. Before he can come close to them, they plan to kill him. They hate him. Says the Ramban the following. Once he came close, they wouldn't be able to kill him. What's the Ramban saying here? You can only hate somebody when you see him from a distance. If you get close to someone, if you learn who he is, you can't hate him anymore. Which is exactly the point. Empathy is about connecting with my fellow human being. You can disagree with someone, but if you can hate someone, it's because you don't understand them, it's because you don't know them, something's wrong. The antidote to hatred, right, which is a distance, is to come close. The whole hate of the brothers was a lack of empathy. Look what the brothers say when they're in Mitzrayim. What do they not mention? They don't say that they feel guilty for selling him. And even according to the Rishonim that say that they actually did sell him, that's not what bothers them. And there's a whole theory they had a right to sell him, whatever. What bothers them is they didn't feel his pain. Think about this. You take your brother, you throw him in a pit, and then you sit down to have lunch. Your brother's crying out to you from a pit, and you're having lunch. If Jews can sit and have lunch when their brother is in agony in a pit, then something has gone really wrong with the dream of a people that could be a role model for the world. That needs to be fixed. And from that moment, Jewish destiny changes. Or that was the plan to teach the message. And now the brothers will go to Egypt and they will end up in Egypt. And the Jewish people will become enslaved in Egypt. And for 200 years they will suffer in order to learn how to feel the pain of another. Because if we can't feel another's pain, then we're not worthy of who we're meant to be. The hate of the brothers was a lack of empathy. So now let's go back to our original question. So why is there no word in the Torah for empathy? So I want to suggest something. I don't know if this is right, but it's something to think about. The problem with empathy is that the world seems to think, you know, I'll give you a great example. We'll finish with this story. We're in Lebanon. We're doing all these crazy things. And I get a call that I have to show up to the battalion headquarters. They want me to come to battalion headquarters. So we finish our patrol. I'm in a Jeep, a couple guys, and we get the battalion HQ. And I get there, and the, whatever, one of the high officers in the battalion is waiting for me. And he says, listen, you're being relieved of your responsibilities. There's a mission that's coming. There was, a, I think it was a Baptist minister, a group of Christians. And they're coming to Lebanon. And they're Americans. 
And they're coming to see, like, what's going on here. There are a lot of Christian Lebanons. They just sort of almost finished a civil war between the Christian Falange and the, 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 the Jerusalem and whatever else is going on there, right? The Muslims, the Shiites. And they want someone to take them around. At that time, we had an alliance with the South Lebanese army, which was basically Christian. So I said, okay, great. This was, like, awesome. You know, I'm going to take around these American Christians, and we're going to be riding in these, like, deluxe Jeeps, and they've planned this whole meal, and I'm gonna get to talk to Americans all day, it's gonna be awesome, right? So I spent the day with these uh, Americans, and at one point I take them to an overlook, and we're looking out over Beirut, and I'm describing to them where the Christians are, how the Civil War worked, whatever, and I was telling them sort of how when we got to Lebanon, how the Christians were so happy we were there, and what the PLO did to the Christians, and what they did to nuns in the convents, unbelievable. And you know, I said, like, the Christians are really like, you know, suffering here. And he says to me the following line, he says, yes, I know. He says, we have a prayer meeting for them every week. And I said, wow, that's, like, that's awesome. So what do you do? So he said, oh, well, you know, he thought I was asking what we pray. He starts telling me the prayers. I said, no, 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 but like, what do you do? He said, what do you mean? I said, I don't know. Do you do like clothing drives? Do you like send them money? Like, what do you do? He goes, no, 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 we pray for them. And I realized in his mind, praying for them was what they were doing. Now, I'm not debating for the moment that tefillah is a powerful energy. You know my opinion. It's not mine, Rev Cook. Tefillah is about making ourselves better, but that's not doing anything. That's not doing something for them. Doing something for them is being there for them. Send them clothes. Rally your congressman. You've got to do something. Empathy is dangerous because you're empathetic. You think you've done something. Judaism says empathy is only valuable if it leads to action. And every single source I was able to find that relates to empathy is all about action. That's why I think there's no word in the Torah for empathy. Because empathy is not the goal. The goal is chesed. The goal is rachamim. The goal is staka. The goal is what you do. The brothers didn't do. They weren't empathetic and they didn't do. And when something changed, it changed in the way they did. Now how that worked, that'll be our discussion Bezrat Hashem in a couple of weeks. A little bit of food for thought. Um, by the way, it's important to, to understand that when you can see somebody from a distance, then you can hate him. You know, uh, many of us are going to be going to Poland in, I don't know, what is it, two, three weeks? One of the interesting details of Poland that I found out one year, the Nazis were very clever. All of the guards, all of the SS guards in the Warsaw Ghetto were Ukrainians. They imported Ukrainians. Now, I remember when I read this, I was curious about why would you bring Ukrainian guards all the way to the Warsaw Ghetto? There were enough Poles who hated us to have Polish SS. Why would they do that? You want to take a guess? Yeah? Because, because they didn't speak, the, the Ukrainians didn't speak German, they didn't speak Yiddish, they didn't speak Polish. The Jews are very good at developing a relationship. They couldn't talk to them. What did the Nazis do? One of their missions was to turn human beings into numbers. Do you know where, according to many historians, where the Western world got its numeric system from? Anybody know? This is fascinating. Pardon? From the Egyptians. And how did ancient Egypt create a system of numbers? They had a system of numbers because they had a slave, a caste society. They needed to number their slaves. They were one of the first societies to turn human beings into numbers. That's exactly what the Nazis did. And that's why in Judaism, it's usher to count people. You're not allowed to turn a human being into a number. 
That was the danger of the distance that was created by the brothers. That's what needed to be fixed. Right? So there's a lot more to think about. It's a little bit of thought on Parshat Vayeshev, on the topic of the brothers, and more to come in the weeks ahead.